the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blind. Is that, did I get that right? You're engineering. James is producing. Yeah, I guess that's right. I'm a little lightheaded. We have. <laughs> Every once in a while, we will host something here at the station. It's it's really quite comical because um, we had some of our advertisers come in and there was some sort of presentation. I have no idea what it was. What I do know is they brought food in and immediately people you may not have seen in weeks suddenly appear. They're just kind of hovering. It's like bees swarming around the lunchroom. Well, there had to be an email sent out saying, no, this is not for you. Don't go in there and start eating. It's not for you. This is for our guests. And immediately see the, you know, their crest fall and everyone, oh, man, I didn't bring lunch today. So a little bit later, they fed all of our guests and there was quite a bit of food left. And the swarm came in. It was like Africanized bees, you know, the really aggressive bees that uh, have uh, come to the country. We're just swarming around. And they had these a bag of I'm not sure what they were. They were they were the color of vegetables, but they were crunchy like potato chips. And they were like kind of square strips of what looked like vegetables. Veggie straws. Chris says they're called veggie straws. Um, and they had a mild hint of a vegetable of some sort, but they were more like potato chip veggie straws. And they were crunchy and kind of salty and good. And I ate three. Don't tell anybody. I ate three bags of them. You know, when you get to be a mature person, you you have self-control and you can resist the temptation. And then, of course, there were the lemon squares. I'm feeling a little uh, lightheaded and... <laughs> Overdone, and then they brought in several different beverages. There was iced tea and lavender lemonade, and uh, so we're going to attempt to make it through the entire program today. But there's no guarantee. If I suddenly leave the room, you'll know what happened, or at least you can imagine what happened today on the program. We're going to talk with Arlene Pelican. She's the author of Parents Rising: Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God. Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. The book is published by Moody. She'll join us later this hour. And at 5 o'clock, Tori Whiting will join us. He is the J. Van Andel trade ec- uh, economist rather, at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Economists have been warning about the steel tariffs imposed by the president. And uh, leaders are predicting that price increases and job losses will be the result. And what may have seemed like a rhetorical suggestion is now reality. The president did make a decision last night to postpone making a decision. Uh, But we'll talk with uh, Tory Whiting about that when he joins us at five. We're also going to talk with Fred Lucas, White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about the Iran deal. It's set to expire on the 12th of um, of May. President Trump is uh, seeking a better deal, but how will that come about? Will he jettison the Iran deal as it stands today? Will he add sanctions? Will he modify what's there? The deadline on May the 12th is fairly significant, and some are linking uh, the decision that he makes in the Iran uh, case 
to what happens in North Korea and the signal that's being sent there. So we'll get into all of that with Fred Lucas later in the five o'clock hour. And we're going to talk with Dennis Fuquay. He is the uh, with Prayer Connection, and that's coming up on May the 18th and 19th. A great opportunity to go deep and to connect prayer with mission. And we'll talk uh, more about that and would encourage you to check that out online. And by the way, I do have the link to uh, Prayer Connection on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page if you happen to be uh, unable to rush to your computer at this moment, but want to to get more information. While developing, President Trump called the Iran nuclear deal a horrible agreement for the United States after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's presentation, alleging that Iran is in fact lying about its nuke program, presented some Israeli intelligence making that point. Nearly 200 migrants from the caravan that traveled across Mexico will seek U.S. asylum in a direct challenge to the Trump administration's immigration policy. And Special Counsel Robert Mueller outlined more than 40 questions he wanted to ask the president in a possible interview for the president's legal team earlier this year, according to reports. The big mystery now is who leaked the questions. Some are suggesting the president himself, because it makes the case that this is no longer about Russian collusion. And the Trump administration announced it will delay tariffs on the European Union, Canada, and Mexico, ahead of, uh, ahead, rather, of the talks with China this week. Well, again, Netanyahu, he tried to sway the president uh, with the Iran decision he's about to make. President Trump called the deal horrible for America about Tehran's covert activities, but he stopped short of saying whether he'd abandon the deal ahead of a looming deadline. The president addressed the claims during a Rose Garden press conference on Monday, moments after Netanyahu held a dramatic presentation revealing intelligence, he says, shows Iran is lying about its nuclear program. Now, this was a presentation made to Israelis by the Israeli prime minister, but it was broadcast widely. And we learned later that he had met with the president and had spent some time with the U.S. Secretary of State as well. Uh, that's just not an acceptable situation, Trump said, of uh, the intelligence uh, revealed. Trump said Netanyahu's claims show Iran is not sitting back idly. Trump has repeatedly expressed a desire to exit that deal, which was signed during the Obama administration. The crucial deadline, as I mentioned, is uh, on the horizon, May 12th, to be more precise. Well, about 200 migrants parked at the nation's busiest border crossing are planning to uh, seek asylum in the U.S. following their dramatic journey in a caravan through Mexico, setting a deadline, uh, or rather a show line with the showdown with the Trump administration over immigration and asylum policy. Eight women and children entered a border facility uh, yesterday to formally file asylum papers, with the rest to follow soon, organizers said. Immigration officials confirmed the facility had begun processing undocumented arrivals again. The caravan, which reached the border with San Diego after an approximately 2,000-mile trip, think about that for a moment, once included more than 1,000 people. It's now down to a few hundred. The migrants' decision to seek asylum comes just one day after U.S. officials closed the border facility there because it was at capacity. Meanwhile, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen said more than a dozen known or suspected terrorists try to enter the United States every day. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily use the southern border. That could be trying to fly into the country. There are a variety of ways to come into the country, but did make that statement that more than a dozen known or suspected terrorists try to enter the United States.
Well, earlier this year, Russia's special counsel Robert Mueller outlined for President Trump's legal team more than 40 questions he planned to ask in a possible interview with the president, according to reports. Well, the list of questions leaked by unnamed sources and reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times focuses mostly, mostly rather, on Trump's decision to fire former FBI director James Comey and to dismiss former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, who has pled guilty to lying to investigators about his contacts with Russia. One question the New York Times reported focused on whether the president had contacted Flynn about possible immunity or a pardon. And the Trump administration announced that it would wait another 30 days before deciding whether to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from the European Union, Canada and Mexico, temporarily avoiding a potential trade war with the 28 member bloc ahead of crucial talks with China this week. The White House also said it had reached an agreement with South Korea on steel imports following discussions on a revised trade agreement, the outlines of which were previously announced by U.S. and South Korean officials. The administration also announced that it had reached agreements in principle with Argentina, Australia and Brazil on steel and aluminum that will be finalized shortly. And on this day in 2011, President Barack Obama announced the death of Osama bin Laden during a U.S. commando operation. Because of the time difference, it was early May 2nd in Pakistan, where the al-Qaeda leader met his end, today marking that anniversary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Also, a reminder that Arlene Pelican will be our guest. Parents Rising, that's the title of her book, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, more than a dozen known or suspected terrorists are trying to get into the United States on any given day, according to Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, uh, citing new internal uh, department data. She says people think of border security in very different ways. But to me, it's very simple. Border security is national security. What we see at the Department of Homeland Security, we see 15 terrorists either planning to travel or actually traveling to the United States each day, known and suspected terrorists. So that means they're coming through our legal land, port and air, but they uh, could be coming across that southwest border. Now, she said could be, but she did say where they actually are. Well, in New York City, for a series of recent closed-door threats and intelligence meetings, Nielsen spoke exclusively to Fox News at Ground Zero, not far from the October 2017 attack, where an ISIS-inspired terrorist used a truck to kill eight people along the West Side Highway. Using the Internet, terrorist groups are encouraging followers to bring your own weapons, use a car, use a truck, use a knife, something you can easily pick up and go and commit uh, chaos and murder, she explained. Well, the chief of counterterrorism at the New York City Police Department, James Waters, said personal relationships matter. Being able to pick up the phone and speak to the secretary herself or her immediate staff and discuss an issue or a problem to protect the city is invaluable. Waters Intelligence Team, they track events worldwide, including the attempted poisoning of the U.K. targeting a Russian uh, military um, officer turned spy and his daughter last month. We study attacks around the world, and if something can be done over there, it can be done over here, she explained. So that's um, that has been 
the secret of some of our success in thwarting plots. We follow the threat. We follow the attacks that go on. We travel to those parts of the world and talk one-on-one to the law enforcement and their governments. With the Supreme Court now weighing the third version of the travel ban affecting a small group of mostly Muslim countries, Nielsen said the Trump administration remains committed to knowing who's entering the U.S. and whether their home nations are high risk. What we've uh, done as a country is, so we've said we owe it to our citizens to know who is traveling here and if they intend to do us harm. Well, a massive poll of young voters has some inconvenient news for Democrats. Enthusiasm for the Democratic Party is waning among millennials as its candidates head into the crucial midterm congressional elections. According to a Reuters Ipsos uh, survey of about 11,000 voters, 18 to 34, conducted during a three-month period. Well, their support for Democrats over Republicans for Congress slipped by about 9 percent points over the past two years to 46 percent overall. And they increasingly say the Republican Party is a better steward of the economy, the poll analysis uh, says. And while two-thirds of the respondents are not especially fond of President Trump, they also said this distaste does not extend to all Republicans or translate into automatic votes for Democratic candidates in the midterm elections. That presents a potential problem for the Dems, who have uh, come to um, count on millennials as a core constituency and will need all the loyalty they can get to achieve a net gain of 23 seats to capture control of the House. Uh, the U.S. House in November, the analysts say. Well, the finding also suggests millennials were open to third-party candidates or sitting out the election and not voting at all. The poll also found a notable shift in a certain demographic. Two years ago, young white people favored Democrats over Republicans for Congress by a margin of 47 to 33. That gap vanished by this year, with 39 percent supporting each party, the analysis says. The shift was especially dramatic among young white men who two years ago favored Democrats but now say they favor Republicans over Democrats by a margin of 46 to 37. The Democratic National Committee declined to comment on the uh, poll. Republican National Committee spokeswoman Casey uh, Smeldial said the poll indicates that young voters like what they are seeing from the party in power. Well, we'll see how that actually translates in an actual election where ballots are cast. But that's an interesting poll. Also, in a major policy change, Facebook said today that it will soon allow users to wipe their personal browsing histories on the platform and opt out of the Internet-wide data collection the social media giant uses to sell targeted ads. The announcement comes amid a furor over revelations that the data analysis firm Cambridge Analytica and others before it inappropriately acquired the private data of tens of millions of Facebook users, a scandal that forced Facebook chief Mike rather Mark Zuckerberg's to testify before Congress last month. One thing I learned from my experience testifying in Congress is that I didn't have clear enough answers to some of the questions about data, Zuckerberg said in a Facebook post about an hour before taking the stage at the company's annual F8 developer conference in San Jose, California. Facebook will still track users by default and people will need to change their privacy settings to scrub their accounts and prevent future ad targeting. At the start of the conference, Zuckerberg and Facebook's chief product officer, Chris Cox, outlined other new programs, including a dating feature similar to Match.com that Zuckerberg said would be designed not just for hookups, but to build meaningful long-term relationships. Meanwhile, stock in, in Match Group, the company that owns Match.com and Tinder, dropped 17% after the announcement. Interactive Core, which owns a large stake in Match Group, dropped almost 12%. One function that would allow users to vote up or down on a Facebook comment, similar to a popular feature on the social news site Reddit, 
uh, will be included. But the new privacy initiatives might have the most lasting effect on Facebook's long-term future, allowing users to avoid some of the platform's abilities to track people on websites across the Internet, including data collected through its Like button and its Pixel program. Zuckerberg said the new privacy control will be called Clear History, the common name for the web browser function that lets users delete their cookies and browsing records. In a separate blog post on Tuesday, just as the F8 conference was getting underway, Facebook's chief privacy officer, Aaron Egan, said it would take months to build the Clear History feature. And in an interview with Wired, Zuckerberg said it would take three years for the company to become more proactive in policing content on the platform. Three years. Egan said the company will let a user see which websites and apps uh, are there um, feeding data back to Facebook, delete that information and opt out of connecting future data collection to their account. Facebook will still collect user data, but will not directly associate it with a particular user's account. If you uh, clear your history or use the new setting, we'll remove identifying information so a history of the websites and apps you've used won't be associated with your account. There'll be a general overview, I suppose, but not one linked to individuals. And a Russian fighter jet buzzed a U.S. military spy plane in the Baltic Sea today. This morning, two defense officials say the Russian Su-27 jet performed a safe but unprofessional intercept of a U.S. Navy P-8 surveillance plane while flying in international airspace over the Baltic Sea. The Russian jet came within about 20 feet of the U.S. Navy aircraft, but the American pilots told officials they never felt threatened or unsafe. It's the first incident between Russian and American military aircraft since January, when a Russian fighter jet buzzed a U.S. Navy EP-3 spy plane over the Black Sea. In that incident, the Russian Su-27 jet came within five feet of the U.S. military plane, crossing directly through the EP-3's flight path, according to a statement from the Navy's 6th Fleet. The encounter was so close, it caused the Navy jet to fly through the Russian jet wash. Uh, State Department spokesman Heather Nauert said at the time Russia's military flagrantly violated international law and risked mid-air collision. She called it the latest example of Russian military activities disregarding international norms and agreements. The interaction lasted approximately two hours and 40 minutes, according to the statement from the Navy's 6th Fleet, headquartered in Naples, Italy. American and Russian jets routinely fly close to one another in the Black and Baltic Seas, but in a professional manner, according to the Pentagon. Tensions with Russia were ratcheted up up over the weekend when the country's foreign minister claimed the U.S. is trying to divide Syria. And that back and forth uh, continues. Well, uh, Portland Mayor Wheeler proposed a new budget, some things you might want to uh, know about it. It increases a tax on businesses to hire more police officers. The budget shores up the city's funding for homeless services. And Mayor Wheeler wants to hire more people to come after delinquent taxpayers. Two Portland community centers are on the chopping block in uh, the mayor's uh, budget, one in Selwood, the other in Woodstock. And the city remains exposed in the event of a recession. You'd like to do something about that. You can read more about the uh, the the mayor's uh, Portland mayor budget proposed budget, I should say um, uh, OPB has an article that uh, offers the five initiatives that the, the uh, mayor is proposing in his budget. All right. 30 minutes after four o'clock is the time up next. We're going to talk with Arlene Pelican. She's the author of parents rising eight strategies for raising kids who love God, respect authority and value what's right. Imagine that we'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, raising kids to today's society can be daunting. Wrong is called right. Smartphones replace human interaction. Families are fractured. And children aren't maturing as quickly as they used to. In our ever-changing culture, parenting can sometimes feel like a losing battle. My next guest, Arlene Pellicane, she's the author of Parents, Raise, Parents Rising, rather Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. She points out that our children won't drift into a life of uh, godliness and morality by accident. It takes intentional parenting to to provide structure and spiritual handrails to guide children toward lives submitted to God. Pelican is an author, speaker, popular media personality, blogger, wife, and mother of three. She believes there's too much at stake in eternity to sit on the sidelines or get sidetracked on a smartphone when it comes to parenting. And in the book, Parents Rising, she guides readers through eight cultural trends that parents face today and what they can do to claim victory. And for each strategy, she includes a reflective question for parents, related prayer, and a practical action step to put each strategy into practice. Arlene Pellicane has written seven books, 31 Days to Becoming a Happy Wife, 31 Days to a Happy Husband, 31 Days to to Becoming a Happy Mom, uh, Growing Up Social with Gary Chapman, 31 Days to a Younger You, Calm, Cool, and Connected, and her latest, Parent Rising. Arlene has uh, appeared in major media outlets, including the Today Show, Focus on the Family, Fox and Friends, and many others. Uh, She... uh, uh, before rather becoming a speaker and author, she served as a featured reporter for the 700 Club and associate director for Turning Point Television with Dr. David Jeremiah. She lives in a happy home in San Diego with her husband, James, and kids, Ethan, Noel, and Lucy, and joins us today to talk about her book, Parents Rising. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's wonderful to be with you, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that you emphasize the importance of being intentional in uh, how kids are raised and that it's possible, even in our time, to make a significant impact on their lives uh, as children and young adults if we are intentional. Yeah, you've got to have that end in mind. I think we can look around us and say, well, we can't engineer this. You know, even if I do all these things, my child still might be messed up, so why try? And we get kind of fatalistic the other way, you know, like it's not going to work, so why even bother? Why try? But here's the deal. You've got to try for something, and you will get a much better result than if you do not try at all. So is this about raising perfect children that make every decision correctly? Of course not. But this is about really thinking through what are the skills that my child needs to grow into an adult and how is I, can I as a parent, even in this digital age, teach them, you know, human relation skills, teach them how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to have God in their lives. How can I teach that and do that on purpose? Because it certainly does not happen by accident. Yeah, yeah. Parents sometimes feel like they're fighting a, a losing battle, an uphill battle. How can they begin to claim victory in the challenging mm-hmm. environment they're called to raise their children in? I think a lot of it has to do with mindset and attitude. And in the back of the book, Parents Rising, there's a manifesto for parents to read of what they are, who they are, you know, how they are the adults in the family, that they are there to call the shots, that they are there appointed by God. And when you get that sense of who you are 
then it helps you in your parenting to realize, okay, I don't have to just be like, yes, dear, yes, dear, you know, like bowing down to my children so I don't upset them, but instead realizing the attitude of having a leader. And if you do not know how to lead your children, like you've spent all this time being their best friend and you don't know, like, I don't want to be the leader. I don't want to be the authority figure in your life. Then I just encourage you, you know, look at other families where you see that there is, of course, loving parenting, but leadership type parenting, and just set your course on learning that because even if you have to fake it to make it, you know, that you say, okay, I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm doing, even if I don't know what I'm doing, (laughs) that attitude of being a leader, that catches on and your kids will understand, okay, wait a minute, when my mom or when my dad say something, they actually mean it, you know, what's going on here? And for us not to be afraid to rise up in that way. You make the point that our grandmothers and grandfathers had more children. They faced greater challenges. They didn't seem quite as stressed out about parenting as we are today. Can we learn and what can we learn from the grandmas and grandpas who have gone before us? There is so much to learn from your mother, your grandmother. You know, think of it. They did not have laundry machines. They, your grandparents, they had maybe twice, three many, three times as many children as you do. They had to cook a whole lot more and do all these things. And yet, If you were to ask a grandma, you know, aren't you stressed about your child's, you know, social status? Are you worried about the activities your child is doing? You know, they would say, what? No, we're too busy working together as a family to worry about those things. And so I think there's a lot to be learned from grandma about the common sense that says, you know, if my if I did that, my mother or my father would kill me. You know, that old common sense that you knew. Mm -hmm. I can't sneak out of class. I can't lie on this test. I can't sneak out of the house. Like, my parent would kill me if I tried that drug or smoked that, you know. So all those common sense things that our grandparents have, I think we as parents today can learn so much from their hard work ethic. And just that they, you know, the grandma would say, clean up your room. And we say, we're having guests over, and it'd be so nice if the house could be clean. And would you be so kind to do that for mommy? That would really give mommy a break. You know, it's so different the way that we approach things. And I think we could learn a lot from the direct grandma. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, The subtitle of your book is Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. Can you just quickly mention all eight of them? And then we're going to focus on a few that I think would be very helpful for parents. The first strategy is amusement is not the highest priority. You are not the cruise director of your child's life. You want character. The second strategy is parents call the shots about children obeying the parents and not the other way around. Strategy number three is routine and boundaries provide security, that your child needs those guardrails. Number four, the Bible and prayer are present daily. It's not just a Sunday-only activity, but something you guys do all week long. Number five is marriage takes the front seat that mom and dad, before they were mom and dad, they were husband and wife, and they don't forget that. Um, Number six, good food served at the table, that both relationally, there's time around the table together, and then nutritionally, that they're actually being fed good food. And then the seventh is love is spelled T-I-M-E that spending time with your children to connect is so crucial. And then the last strategy, number eight, launching adults, not babying children, that your goal is not to hover around your child and make their life easy, 
but your goal is to give them the skills they need to launch into the world and leave your house before they are 30 years old. (laughs) As I mentioned, um, each of the strategies includes a reflective question, related prayer, and a practical action step. So this is designed to be very practical as parents are walking through the role that God has assigned to them. Absolutely. We want to do something, you know, so you have this idea, this is what I want, now what do I do? And so there's a lot of practical tips along the way, so you know what to do. Now, one of the first strategies that you mention is um, the the subject of amusement. You explore uh, the the notion that amusement is not the highest priority. And uh, given the devices and the gadgets and the toys and the games that are currently available, sometimes we give the impression that perhaps it is most important. And it's easiest, right? It's the most convenient. If you have a child who's waiting for a meal, well, why don't you play this video game? If you have a child who's whining in the car, please watch this video and leave mommy and daddy alone, right? So it's become so convenient and we use it so readily that we are losing something. You know, we might have a quote unquote easier life as a parent because of the technology, but it's a shallower life that you do not have those deep roots with your children because the spare time is around devices instead of with each other. And then, of course, there's all sorts of other factors, the brain of your child, what kind of stimulation is it getting, you know, what kind of addiction may they be forming to video games, to social media, where are teenage girls finding their worth in their social media feed or in what God and their parents think about them. So many ramifications of a child who is overdoing screens and also of parents who are overdoing screens. So it is time to reclaim some spaces because technology will be with you as a family, but does it need to be with you at the dinner table? You know, or it could be the breakfast table. You know, take those devices away overnight from your children because believe me, at 1130 at night, mm-hmm. nobody's like, hey, you want to go to the Bible study on Friday with me? You know, nobody is saying that <laughs> in the middle of the night. So there are certainly things that you can do to say, you know, your amusement is not my highest priority. And as a parent, I'm kind of going to be the mean person when it comes to technology. Mm. We're talking about the book titled Parents Rising, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. We're going to continue that conversation with Arlene Pellicane in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. We're talking about the book Parents Rising, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, Respect Authority, and Value What's Right. My guest is Arlene Pellicane. She is the author. The book is published by uh, Moody. Now, how can uh, parents improve the use of technology in, in the home? I think uh, we're concerned about children's overuse of it, but also parents' uh, use of it that sets sort of an example in the tone in the household. What's the best way for parents to improve the use of technology, which is with us always, I suppose. Yeah, it's so important for the parents also. It's not many times you think, oh, it's the teenagers, it's the kids, but it's us, it's us parents. And so having that control of knowing when to turn it off, when to keep it on, when to do the work at home, and when to say, you know what, this really needs to, this can wait until tomorrow. So one of the things I suggest in a different book, actually, Calm, Cool, and Connected, is a move called The Pivot. So basically, when your child comes into your airspace, that you actually physically pivot away from your device, your computer, look into their eyes, 
what can I get you? You know, where is this? Oh, it's at the bottom drawer. And then you can continue. But this whole idea of pivoting away from your device so that your kids always know, hey, my mom, my dad, they think I'm important. I come before that device. And so put the person in front of you before your device, your device can wait, and then really limit the time, whether it's, okay, after dinner, we don't have devices, and we talk to each other, and we hang out together, or if we watch something, we watch it together as a family. Because watching together is a whole lot different than everyone going into their own nooks and crannies Mm -hmm. in the house with their little devices. Yeah. So those kinds of things really help. You write about the importance of boundaries and routines in in helping a child's development. Yes, that, you know, for that child to know, these are my routines, that's so helpful, so that they know it's not just like, oh, what happens next? And they're thrown into the car and carted off to like their brother's practice, that they understand this is the routine of our day, it's explained to them, and it's something that's pretty regular. And so two things you can really capitalize on is a regular mealtime, that whether it's a regular breakfast shared together or a dinner shared together, and then a regular routine for bedtime. And that's not just important for like your three-year-old, that's important for your eight-year-old and your 15-year-old that, okay, around the same time, every night, this is when you go to bed. These are the routines that happen before you go to bed. And of course, that whole idea of sitting on your child's bed, whether they're a teenager or a little teeny kid, and just being there listening, that's kind of that magic moment where your kid may tell you something that you had no idea was on their heart. And maybe you show up to bed and they're quiet for months. And then one day they spill the beans, you know? So it's just that routine of them knowing, Hey, my parents going to be there. So bedtime and mealtime, those are two really good uh, routines to build in to your child's life. You spend an entire chapter on the importance of keeping your marriage ahead of your kids. First describe what that means, define what that means and, and why it's important, not only for you and your marriage, but also for your children. Mm-hmm. It is the husband and wife, you know, that will continue the relationship. Your kids will eventually leave your home, but you and your spouse, you're the ones that are going to continue to be there. And before little baby came into the picture, all the attention went between this husband and the wife, right? And then this baby, this eight-pound wonder comes, and all the affection shifts towards the baby, as it should But then in time, sometimes we never shift the affection away from the baby. Everything's about the baby. Everything's about the children and the couple withers. And so romance takes a backseat, you know, their, whatever the individual needs are for conversation, for physical intimacy, those things take a backseat. And 18 years later, you realize we are strangers who just happen to love these kids. And so nobody wants that. So you want to continually rekindle that romance between you as a husband and wife. What does that look like? A date night on the calendar, once a year that you get away for an overnight, that when you come home from work, maybe you spend the first three minutes talking to each other on the couch uninterrupted, whatever that is. And don't be afraid that, oh, well, but my kids, no, your kids will like that mommy and daddy love each other and that they take time for each other. They will like that. So know that when you prioritize your marriage, you're really doing a great service for your kids. So someday they can grow up and say, hey, I want to be married. That looks really comforting and fun and wonderful. And that's the kind of example you want for them. Yeah. You also spend a chapter focus on the dinner table for two reasons. One, for the fellowship of the family, but also it's an opportunity to to, uh, give kids healthy food. Yes, you know, we have a problem both in this country and in every country around the world 
with that we are we're eating too much, we're overfed, but we're undernourished, and we have diseases like diabetes and heart disease. And you know, of course, for us as parents, you look at this child. I want soda. I want chips. I'll eat pizza. I'll eat this. Okay, fine. That's fine. But then down the road, if you realize, wait a minute, I've been giving them this constant stream of junk food. And that's really not going to go well for them as they grow into an adult. And so for us as parents to realize, hey, we've got to bring back those vegetables. They may not dance on TV, but they need to dance on the dinner table because <laughs> my kid needs those things to, in order to have those strong building blocks to grow a strong body. And so if they're not being nourished at home, where are they going to be nourished? Because it certainly is not going to happen when they go out with their friends, right? So, you know, just a thing, uh, just a regular bottle of soda. I looked at it, it was 64 grams of sugar, which is 16 teaspoons of sugar in a bottle of soda. And if your child is having a bottle of soda every day, 16 teaspoons of sugar inside that, plus all the other things they're eating, it's like, whoa, so one easy swap, swap the soda for water. And will they thank you? Probably not. But they will thank you much later, and it'll be worth it. Yeah. Uh, you um, make the point that in today's culture, a lot of what happens in the family is dictated by the child. Vacations are based on where the kids want to go. Schedules are filled with kids' activities, and sometimes to the detriment mm-hmm. of the, the parents, that financial decisions impact uh, are impacted rather by the child's desire. How can parents, and should they, take back control of what happens in the household and what the, the core values are? It's the idea that, hey, who is knocking out the bills around here? When you kids start knocking around some bills, then you can decide where we're going to go on vacation. You know, just have that mindset that you are the one that pays the mortgage, that pays the bills, and the ultimate decision rests with you. If there are five people in the family, you know, you could have five votes for, okay, who wants to go where? But in today's home, you usually have, like, the kids, they have, like, two-thirds of the ownership, you know, like, it's, they're the ones that are steering the thing. And so, of course, you listen to your kids' opinions, but ultimately, whether it's vacation, what do we buy for Christmas, what does this birthday party look like, all those decisions rest on the parents because they're the ones that are paying the bills and who are living with the results of whatever was done. So don't give your kids too much of a say. Give them a say, but not too much because you still have the controlling share in your home. How do we fight against the feeling that we're failing as parents if we're not strong in all of the areas, the eight Mm -hmm. areas that you emphasize in the book? I think gratitude plays a big part of it. Instead of saying like, oh, I'm not good at this, or oh, I'm so bad at this. Instead of saying, wait a minute. Instead of those shaming thoughts, what am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I get to learn more. I'm grateful for a new day. I'm grateful that my children are healthy. And just switch that around instead of being so hard on yourself. Be gracious to God. Be thankful to God. Thank you, God, that I'm doing this. And let it turn into a cry for help. Like, God, will you help me with this? Will you give me wisdom in this area where I have no idea? You know, I do not know. I mean, I barely know how to cook, right? So, so, <laughs> so you have to learn these things. And so instead of like, oh, I'm such a bad cook, oh, I'm such a bad, you know, you know, print out a recipe, give it a try. You know, so don't be so hard on yourself and just ask God for help. Seek others that you know are good at things that you're weak at and ask them for advice and be open to learn and to grow. Mm, great advice. Well, the book is titled Parents Rising, Eight Strategies for Raising Kids Who Love God, respect authority, and value what's right. Much more in the book than our conversation uh, was able to reflect, but a great uh, read and resource for moms and dads. The book is published by Moody Publishers, and I want to thank you, Arlene Pelican, for joining us today.
Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Tori Whiting. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, what economists are saying about the steel tariffs imposed by the president and decisions made just yesterday. We'll talk with Fred Lucas, a White House correspondent for the Daily Signal about the Iran deal. And we'll talk with Dennis Fu- Fuqua, who is the uh, with Prayer Connection, which is coming up on the 18th and 19th of this month. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Chris Williams is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. We had anticipated a conversation with uh, Tori Whiting, who is the J. Van Andel trade economist at the Thomas A. Rowe uh, Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation, having some difficulty reaching uh, Tori. So that's probably not going to happen, but I'll share a little bit of what we were going to talk about. And that uh, relates to uh, what economists and industry leaders are saying. They're predicting price increases and job losses as a result of the president's steel tariffs. We'll talk uh, a bit about that and a decision he made just yesterday about suspending a decision um, on some countries. We're also going to hear from Fred Lucas, the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about the Iran deal, uh, which is set to expire on May the 12th. President Trump is seeking a better deal, but there are several options he may choose uh, in that process. So we will uh, we'll get into uh, to that when he joins us later. And also we're going to talk about Prayer Connection. It's coming to the Portland area on the 18th and 19th. And now is a great time to sign up to be a part of uh, this wonderful event that isn't just talking about prayer, but encourages uh, participants to actually engage in prayer. Imagine that. Uh, taking on the very subject that uh, is the theme of the Mission Connection event Prayer Connection. So we'll tell you all the important details. Also, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, and we do have a link to Prayer Connection there as well. Again, that's coming up on the 18th and 19th um, of May. So great opportunity. Well, President Trump at the last minute on Monday evening announced that he would again postpone imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Canada, Mexico and the European Union. Uh, this is pushing off a key economic decision. He's trying to uh, prod foreign leaders into making trade related concessions. So sort of the stick precedes the uh, uh, the, the carrot. Uh, the White House said it reached agreements on metal imports with Argentina, Australia, and Brazil, saying that more details will finalized will be finalized in the next 30 days. He put off a decision on steel and aluminum uh, tariffs because uh, he's trying to gain more access for U.S. businesses to their markets as part of the North American Free Trade Agreement. That's with Mexico and Canada and the renegotiation of that. Canadian, Mexican, and U.S. officials are meeting in Washington this week, and they're discussing that plan. The president's strategy with the European Union is a bit more fluid. And according to the Washington Post, as he has praised some countries like France, he's chastised others like Germany, which he says need to allow U.S. companies more access to consumers. Well, the late announcement that was yesterday that the tariffs would have kicked in at midnight is the latest unexpected directive in Trump's four-month effort to upend the United States trade relationship with more than a dozen countries. This is something like the art of the deal. You may Make the announcement and people scramble to try to make adjustments to avoid the tariffs being put on. Whether or not that's successful at this point, 
not so sure. Some countries have received preferential treatment by agreeing to early changes like South Korea. Others like Japan, they've been rebuffed despite repeated overtures from their leaders. Well, the administration has reached agreement in principle on the metals trade with Argentina, Australia and Brazil and is extending negotiations with Canada, as I mentioned, Mexico and the European Union for a final 30 days, which is uh, something of a modest reprieve. The metals negotiations have been a key test of um, the president's trade strategy and diplomacy. It's pitting his uh, highly personal bargaining style against the the determination of major U.S. trade partners and allies to hold fast and retaliate if necessary under the World Trade Organization rules. Well, my conversation with Tori Whiting was going to focus on whether or not the steel tariffs are already hurting steel-using industries. And he wrote for the Daily Signal that economists and industry leaders predicted price increases and potential job losses after the Trump administration imposed these tariffs on steel and aluminum. And what may uh, uh, may have seemed like rhetorical uh, possibility is now reality. He says the sneaky brilliance of the tariffs is that benefits are concentrated to a small, politically connected and very uh, vocal few, while costs for American consumers are widely dispersed. And I wanted to talk with him about whether or not that uh, is the case now. Um, it's, it skews the narrative, he points out. And meanwhile, scores of American businesses are suffering the consequences. Well, the House Ways and Means Committee in April, they held a hearing on the effects of tariffs. And among those testifying was Kevin Kennedy, who's the president of Kennedy Fabricating. Or Fabricating. You want to put the emphasis on the right syllable. Anyway, Kennedy Fabricating is a company that uses steel. They, uh, And according to their website, it's the leading custom steel fabricator serving the telecommunications industry in the southern U.S., and it's a, a preferred vendor with numerous national cell tower owners, operators, and general contactors. In other words, they're a pretty big deal. Well, in his testimony, again before the House Wayne's and Means Committee, Mr. Kennedy spoke about how the family-owned business survived many economic hardships, including the 2008 market crash, but said that the steel tariffs seem like the worst thing to happen to the, uh, the company thus far. Quoting him, he said, without any competition, U.S. steel producers have raised prices over 40 percent. Why should we pay 40 percent more uh, here than our foreign competitors pay in their countries? This means that a a company in China can now purchase a raw steel beam from a Chinese mill at a 40 percent discount, drill two holes in it and ship it to the United States as a fabricated good without a tariff. He went on to add, again speaking before the House committee, it's not just China. One of our Canadian competitors just went from a position of losing projects to us to now winning projects at our expense because they can import raw steel to Canada without a tariff and purchase it 40% cheaper than we can from our own domestic suppliers. Well, Kennedy Fabricating isn't the only company that's been hit hard. Many companies are also appealing to the government for exemption from the tariff. Many of them joined forces to form a coalition of American and steel manufacturers and users. And the coalition spokesman, Paul Nathanson, explained the problems with the tariff, again speaking before the House Ways and Means Committee. He said these tariffs will not do, uh, these tariffs rather, will do nothing to uphold their stated purpose of protecting U.S. national security. They will instead hurt U.S. manufacturers in the near term by raising the price of the essential inputs they need to make finished products and do long-term harm to domestic steel producers by eroding their own customer base. 
Well, another group similar to the Coalition of American Medical, rather, Metal Manufacturers and Users is the, the Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association. It comprises more than a thousand companies that manufacture vehicle parts. And they say, and uh, Wilson, Senior Vice President of the association, said in part, the exclusion process is already creating significant burdens on these companies. The exclusion request uh, process lacks transparency and will be particularly burdensome for small manufacturers. It is unbalanced and appears to not allow for successful outcomes for downstream users. Well, the process established by the Commerce Department penalizes American companies for using imported goods as uh, inputs, even if the source company is a free trade partner and the uh, imports uh, in question are being sold at market value. In other words, uh, the narrative has been skewed um, and the it, those who are um, benefiting are a small concentration of companies, politically connected, very um, uh, vocal few, while the cost to American consumers is widely dispersed. And Tory Whiting makes that uh, case in his recent article in uh, uh, The Daily Signal. We were going to talk about that, but that's generally the gist of the point he was attempting uh, to make. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Fred Lucas, who is a White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We'll talk about the Iran deal set to expire on May the 12th. But the president, he's seeking a better deal. How will that happen? We'll speculate a bit based on what the president has actually said and the uh, options that are currently available. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered an extraordinary address yesterday to his nation regarding the status of Iran's nuclear program. Well, not only was he speaking about the existential threat confronting Israel, his remarks came at a time when war, whether between Syria or Gaza, could break out at any time. Well, just as French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel have come to Washington to try to convince President Trump to stay in that nuclear deal, there was a sense that Netanyahu's audience was not only the Israeli people, but also President Trump. Well, the president, without saying he would pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, said on Monday that he's open to signing a better agreement with the Islamist regime. Now, my next guest, Fred Lucas, has written on the subject. He is White House correspondent for the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this uh, pending deal. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's um, let's begin by talking a little bit about uh, what Benjamin Netanyahu had to say and how seriously uh, that expose has been taken, not only by the U.S. president, because it confirmed what he and many um, Republicans on the Hill have, have said from the beginning, but how seriously this information was taken by others who also heard uh, what he had to say. Well, uh, what's interesting is that... Uh this, there was actually a phone conversation. Uh, we know there was a readout White House issued on Sunday about a phone conversation between Benjamin Netanyahu and President Trump. Uh, it did not get into detail about this so much, but uh, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders did say today that this was a topic of conversation. The White House knew this was coming uh, before Benjamin Netanyahu made the uh, uh, full announcement and, um, and and gave a lot of the details. But uh, I was in the Rose Garden yesterday uh, during this press conference, uh, and President Trump, he didn't say he would pull as we mentioned earlier, he didn't say he'd pull out, but it seemed fairly evident when he said he's open to a better deal. 
that he's not very happy with this deal. Uh, it, it's apparent, based on what the Israeli intelligence has found out, that uh, Iran was not forthcoming at all uh, going into this deal, which most people suspected, largely suspected, uh, going into the, the 2015 JCPOA. So uh, we might be in a situation where the United States pulls out of one nuclear deal right as it's negotiating another mm-hmm. with North Korea. And I should mention that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu apparently had been meeting with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo prior to that uh, arrangement as well. Um, and there had been a strike against um, Iranian forces in Syria. Now, what, from your perspective, mm-hmm. were the more dramatic uh, revelations offered by the Israeli prime minister? Well, uh, yeah, Netanyahu said that the Iranians had been brazenly lying. Uh, they had something very strongly in development when they set up this agreement with the Obama administration and, and the uh, P5 plus 8. Uh, or my, I'm sorry, P5 plus 1. Uh, in developing this in 2015, uh, that was the uh, five members of the National Security Council of the UN and also Germany. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, the, it, it was discovered that they um, were, were ha- had developed something so far uh, well in advance of what the U.S. had expected. Uh, the U.S. went into this, uh, and, and the Allies went into this, believing that uh, Iran had only come, come so far along, thus it was okay to simply delay the development of their nuclear capabilities rather than halt it. So the, the, the entire premise was... Uh, false based on this intelligence we have now. So is it fair to say that President Trump and other critics of this Iran deal have been vindicated, or are there still skeptics, for example, in Europe uh, who don't take as seriously as others might uh, what the Israeli prime minister says and the evidence that was presented uh, yesterday? Well, yeah, uh, this, this is, uh, and, and, and I should mention this, uh, what uh, Israel discovered was a program in Iran called Project Ahmad. Uh, which was developing nuclear weapons. Yeah, we did find out today from European governments that they don't take this serious. Uh, oh, that might be overstating. They, they, maybe they take it serious, but they don't want to take it too serious because they really, really want to be part of this deal. Um, and, and what we did see in 2015 is that a lot of world powers that were out there wanted a deal with Iran above all else. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that is something we're seeing very going to see very differently going to these North Korea negotiations because we have President Trump saying up front that he's willing to walk away from the table. Yeah. And, and that's reminiscent, I think, of uh, Reagan and Gorbachev when Reagan walked out initially and then, you know, that ended up turning out quite well in the eyes of history. Now, the president has until May the 12th to make a final decision. But as you pointed out, it's right. very likely he'll pull out of the Iran deal as it currently uh, exists, but uh, be at the same time negotiating a new deal. Uh, that seems uh, probable, likely at this point. Uh, yeah, and, and another aspect here is that, uh, and if you you recall, this was talked about a lot. It was an Obama administration selling point. They talked about snap back mm-hmm. uh, of the sanctions if Iran violated uh, portions of the agreement. Uh, there might be a way, and, and European allies might come along on this, uh, to prevent the entire agreement from falling apart. These, the allies might snap back some of these sanctions in place. Uh, and that would sort of, I guess, uh, split things up a little bit, allow 
a portion of the agreement to stay in place while these sanctions are still pushing heavily on Iran to prevent their nuclear development. Well, we'll certainly watch very closely what happens next. Fred Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Again, Fred Lucas is the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal, and he is also um, a co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. Well, as I mentioned, Israel, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivered an extraordinary address yesterday and some of the uh, quick analysis of what the prime minister had to say in his expose. And again, he was speaking to his own nation, but it was widely broadcast and certainly viewed by others. We know that the Israeli prime minister had spoken to President Trump. He had also met with, uh, at least on one occasion, perhaps others, uh, with uh, Secretary of State Mike uh, Pompeo prior to this report and after reports of a new strike against Iranian forces in Syria. Syria. Among the highlights, uh, he pointed out that Israel has obtained hard proof of Iran's clandestine nuclear program known as Project Ahmad, as uh, Fred Lucas mentioned a few moments ago. He said that Israel has 100,000 files, 183 CDs from Iran's nuclear archive. He pointed out that Project Ahmad set out to design, produce, and test five warheads, each with a 10 kiloton TNT yield for uh, integration on a missile. Now, that's like five Hiroshima bombs to be put on ballistic missiles, Netanyahu also pointed out. He said that Iran suspended Project Ahmed in 2003, but preserved and redirected much of that research for later use under the leadership of the same scientific team. And he pointed out that in 2015, nuclear deal in in that deal, it required Iran to come clean, in quotes, on its past nuclear weaponization efforts. They did not come clean. Iran claimed it never had a nuclear weapons program. Iranian leaders have repeatedly said Iran does not want to develop nuclear weapons. Well, we know that to be false. Uh, Netanyahu uh, declared uh, that these files conclusively prove that Iran is brazenly lying, and he added that the 2015 nuclear deal is based on Iranian lies and deception. A nuclear-armed Iran is a threat to both America and Israel, and if they would only open their eyes, it is a threat to to European nations as well. Well, as I mentioned, on May the 12th, President Trump faces a decision to either stay in the nuclear deal, he can waive certain sanctions or leave the deal and allow some sanctions to be reimposed. Uh, There would still be a narrow window of time to fix the Iranian nuclear deal before the most serious uh, sanctions are reimposed in mid-July. Well, yesterday's presentation by the Prime Minister of Israel provided additional justification for President Trump uh, if he decides to leave that deal. And it also might increase the pressure on the administration to abandon the deal. But again, we have until May the 12th, which is just next week, to see what the president decides, either uh, on his own or in coordination with the other signatories on the Iran deal. Meanwhile, the Iranians are doing nothing to alleviate the uh, concern in the West. Iran's leaders have repeatedly threatened to annihilate Israel in recent days. Yesterday, uh, the top nuclear official warned Iran is not bluffing. Technically, we are fully prepared to enrich uranium higher than we used to produce before the deal was reached. End quote. Well, Netanyahu's address yesterday comes after a meeting with the Secretary of State uh, from the United States after reports of the new strikes against Iranian forces in Syria. As I mentioned, Secretary Pompeo told reporters in Tel Aviv that we remain deeply concerned about Iran's dangerous escalation of threats to Israel and the region, and Iran's ambition to dominate the Middle East remains. The United States is with Israel in this fight, and we uh, strongly support Israel's sovereign right to defend itself. So that's where it stands. 
stands at this point. But if you didn't have an opportunity to hear the um, Israeli prime minister, it was uh, very dramatic, and you may want to... uh, Take the opportunity to pick that up at some future point. Again, talking about uh, the May 12th deadline in which the United States, the president of the United States, will have to decide to remain in the Iran nuclear deal as it stands to make alterations, to impose new sanctions. Uh, That will be made clear at some point in the not too distant future, given the fact that May the 12th is actually next week. So we'll uh, continue to follow that. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about Prayer Connection. It's coming once again back to the Portland metro area. I think this might be the third year, and it's an extension of Mission Connection. Dennis Fuqua will join us to talk about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I am delighted that for the third year in a row, Prayer Connection is coming back to the Portland metro area. And with me in studio to talk about that is Dennis Fuque. He is with Prayer Connection, and uh, we want to make sure you know all the important details because this is a, a wonderful opportunity for God's people to come together around the subject of prayer. First of all, welcome back. It's been a while. Thank you. Good to be with you again. I think last time you were with me in studio, we were talking about your book. You have a good memory. Yeah. It's I didn't even remember I wrote a book. No, that's not true. We were talking about the book, uh, uh, Living Prayer, yes. uh, The Lord's Prayer Alive in You. Yes. It's been yeah. a powerful part, in my, uh, powerful scripture in my life. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Prayer Connection that's coming up on May the 18th and 19th. That's a Friday and Saturday. And Dr. Mark Jones is going to be the uh, primary speaker, but there will also be opportunity for sessions. Give us kind of an overview of Prayer Connection 2018. Good. First of all, uh, Prayer Connection, as the name would suggest, is uh, under the banner of Mission Connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has spawned several other connections, and this one focuses on prayer, and sort of the tagline is where prayer and mission connect. And so one of the unique aspects of uh, Prayer Connection is it's not just prayer in general. It will cover that, uh, but it's specifically how does does prayer relate to God's mission in accomplishing his purposes here locally as well as overseas. Well, you know, that's so good to broaden our vision of of prayer, because oftentimes we're stuck in praying for our our concerns, which can be relatively narrow. I mean, God invites us to do that, but we don't want to limit our prayers to just what our concerns happen to be when God has a global mission that involves the entire body of Christ. And so this helps us to look outward to all that God is doing and how we can come alongside. Absolutely right. And and a, a way of thinking about it is where prayer and mission connect is really the great commandments. It's to to help us love God better and to help us love people better. And prayer is really essential in both aspects of our loving God better and Mm -hmm. as well as loving people better. Why do you think prayer is such a challenge for us? I know a lot of people really struggle with a consistent prayer life. We're invited to pray without ceasing, and yet we can't seem to, for 10 minutes, you know, (laughs) marshal our thoughts to pray. There's a variety of reasons. One, I don't want to diminish, but I don't want to overemphasize the reality of the spiritual forces that Mm -hmm. are against prayer. Uh, The truth is uh, uh, prayer is a dynamic spiritual weapon, and the evil one does not want people to pray. But I think just uh, more of uh, reasons why we don't pray better and and pray more is because we we try a little bit and we sort of get discouraged, and then so we just sort of back off. There's something about in the spiritual life, there's something about pressing through. And uh, it's true that uh, all of us start out just sort of stumbling along our way. But when we stumble forward, when we continue to press forward, uh, we can see a great encouragement. We understand prayer better, et cetera. So I think it's just a matter of persistence that, that we move from discipline 
sort of from from duty to discipline to delight, someone said once. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think, too, that as we connect our prayer to mission, that gives us greater um, desire to pray? Because we see it's not just me sitting alone in a room talking to God, but it's me connecting with believers all over the world as this this, um, opportunity that he invites us into. And we're having an impact on God's mission all over the earth. Absolutely correct. And I think that's one of the major dynamics of prayer connection is that helping people connect with God's mission in prayer, not just not just my interests, but God's mission. And and when you when you have a sense that when you pray, you're actually helping the process of the kingdom of God expanding. You're not just uh uh, to use a, a well-worn analogy, you're not just looking for a parking space, praying for a parking space, but you're praying that uh, that that people would engage with God in their big in His big process of reaching people for Him. Man, what a so, privilege that He absolutely. would invite us to take part in that that amazing enterprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just amazing. Uh, let me tell you a couple of stories of, in, from history about how how prayer and mission has connected. Um, Billy Graham just recently passed away. And uh, the, he was converted in 1934, uh, but not many people know that uh, a year before Mordecai Ham came and preached when Billy Graham gave his life to the Lord, a year prior to that, uh, Billy Graham's father invited people to come and pray on his property, and one of the things they were praying for is that God would, through Mordecai Ham's ministry, raise up a man who would change the world. Huh. Little did he know. Little did he know, right. Another story, Dorothea Clapp. Dorothea Clapp, and actually Bill McLeod, the director of Mission uh, Connection, just wrote about this recently. Uh, Dorothea Clapp lived across the street from a high school in uh, Ramsey, New Jersey. And there was a, a student there, in, in, uh, he was a sophomore in high school, uh, George Verwer. And, and Mrs. Clapp noticed him, and she started praying that someone, that, that he would become a, a, not only a follower of Christ, but a missionary. And now, 63 years later, George Verber, founder of Operation Mobilization, is again responsible for thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, people being influenced for Jesus. So w- when we pray, things happen. They don't always happen fast. They don't always happen rapid. We can't, sometimes we see prayer requests answered right away. But when we pray into God's mission, it... it, it we, it, it is happening, but we don't always see it right yeah. away. We need a few years, a few decades to see the end results. This is what men and women of faith do. They anticipate that God is at work, right. and I'm playing a small part by engaging in prayer as we're invited to come in his presence. Good. We're talking about uh, prayer connection with Dr. Mark Jones. It's coming up on the 18th and 19th of this month. That's a Friday and Saturday at Central Bible Church in Portland. And you are invited to participate. Um, Dr. Mark Jones is an elder and a prayer pastor at City Bible Church here in Portland. He's taught personal evangelism and prayer in the local church at Portland Bible College. He's an adult, uh, I should say, and adult education at City Bible. He has presented his uh, personal growth seminar, Right, Wrong Thinking, both locally and in churches nationwide, along with raising their four children. He and his wife, Susan, they oversee the prayer ministries at the uh, in the Department of Prayer at uh, City Bible Church. And he's going to be presenting, but in addition to that, there are going to be uh, workshops, 10 workshops, uh, workshops sessions for every uh, for very practical leaders um, a lot of time devoted to praying itself not just talking about prayer as well one of the things that we've committed to as the planning team for a prayer connection is that 
is that there would be as much time spent in prayer hmm. as talking about prayer. That's true for the plenary sessions where Dr. Jones will be sharing uh, about prayer, but then he's also going to lead us in prayer. And we've also asked that each of the 10 workshop leaders would make it true for their uh, the, the 75-minute workshops, and so about half of it devoted to actually praying. So, for example, uh, James Autry is going to be leading a, leading a workshop on how do, how do I prayer walk with the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. We, we, understand, we hear a lot about walking in the Spirit, but how about prayer walking in the Holy Spirit? And so they'll not only talk about it, but then they're actually going to go out and actually prayer walk. And uh, there's a, a, a workshop done on mobilizing children. Georgine, there's between about 2.3 million children in the world today. What would it be like if some of those children who were believers were mobilized to prayer? The 414 window, uh, not a geographic t- uh, a window, but a, but a chronological window, uh, people between ages 4 and 14 mobilizing those people to prayer. That's a, that's a worldwide movement. And uh, there'll be a workshop on that, uh, several other workshops. As well. oh, it's yeah. going to be a great weekend, and you are invited to participate. I have a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, yeah. but what's the best way for people who would like to come? Again, that's Friday and Saturday, May 18th and 19th, to, uh, to register to, to attend Prayer Connection. Yes, uh, two things that I'll mention. First of all, if they go to the, the event page at missionconnection.com. They'll, get, they'll see the, a link there for Prayer Connection. They can do that there. But uh, a specific thing is we would encourage more than one person from a congregation to come, because that way when they go back home, they can compare notes, etc. And so there's a special uh, discount, a special incentive for a sponsoring church. If, if, you, if a sponsoring church will pay $100, they'll get three people coming, uh, be able to come for that $100. And the regular registration is $39 a piece. So. And those details you can find on the website All the as details well. are there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, Prayer Connection, Dr. Mark Jones is the plenary speaker. There's lots going on, including lots of prayer. And this year at Central Bible Church on Northeast Gleason in Portland, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Friday night, 7 to 9, and then on Saturday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's going to be a great weekend. Hope you will plan on coming. Prayer Connection. Uh, with Dr. Mark Jones. Hey, thank you so much for making this possible. I know that you and others with the Mission Connection are providing these opportunities for the body of Christ, and this is going to be just another opportunity for us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Amen. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hey, thank, thank you, you, you so much. much. Privilege to be here, a privilege to be part of Prayer Connection, as well as to be with you again. Thanks. We'll have to have you back. Deal. <laughs> Quick break, we'll be back. Did you know that this Thursday is the National Day of Prayer? We'll give you some details in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about prayer connection that's coming up the 18th and 19th of this month, and I hope you'll make plans to be a part of that. But I also want to remind you that this Thursday, May the 3rd, it's going to be the 35th annual National Day of Prayer. There are more than 35,000 organized events on this Thursday, and several million people are expected to participate in small towns and cities, state capitals all across America. This past Sunday, Greg Cox, who is vice president of Constituency Affairs, kicked off the Bible reading marathon. That's taking place in front of the Capitol building, and they're reading from the German translation of the book of Genesis. Every minute of the day and night leading up to the National Day of Prayer, clergy and others are going to read the scripture in multiple languages in front of the U.S. Capitol. Matt Staver pointed out that our nation is in desperate need of prayer. That's stating the obvious, is it not? 
The Bible says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It availeth much, as the old translations say. It is uh, fitting that unity is the focus of this year's call to prayer, and he encourages us to join millions around the country asking for God's help, his wisdom for the future, forgiveness for sins, and unity for our nation. Before the founding of our nation, there was a call to prayer in 1775. Our founding fathers asked for wisdom in establishing a fair government. Later, they battled an almost insurmountable division. The larger states, they wanted the legislature to represent the population, and the little states wanted equal representation for each state. Well, this conflict almost prevented the nation's unity and very existence. It brought our founding fathers to their knees again, and eventual compromise resulted in creating both the Senate and the House. It's fitting that this week, as our nation faces moral depravity, racial tensions, political disagreements, that we come together once again on our knees and ask for unity. Mobilizing unified public prayer for America may be the most important thing we can do right now. I know it seems like there's a lot going on, but I think uh, Dr. Ronnie Floyd, who's the president of the National Day of Prayer, is right. Mobilizing unified public prayer for America may be the most important thing we can do right now. America is broken, he goes on to say. Division is undeniable. Racial tension is alarming. Lawlessness abounds. Reconciliation appears impossible. Well, the National Day of Prayer in America is needed now more than ever because our nation, uh, our nation's history and its present cries out for uh, intervention. Well, as I mentioned, the theme this year is unity. The National Day of Prayer is the first Thursday of every May, and that means this Thursday, May the 3rd. There are several uh, scriptures uh, that we are praying during this occasion, uh, how we pray for unity in America, beginning with a reference in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The present spiritual crisis in our country is calling us to pray for and take all necessary actions to come together as a nation, beginning with God. God's people. God is the only one who can bring unity, harmony, and oneness in America. We certainly have proven that we cannot do it ourselves. Therefore, we look only to him in prayer. We need to call upon God to empower us to make every effort to live in unity, to call for unity and forward unity in America continually. And then we are praying for the church in America. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. 1 Corinthians 1.10. God is calling his church in America to unify upon the authority of the Bible and the centrality of Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. We can ask God for thousands of local churches to unify as one body, agreeing together that God is our great need in America, and call upon God for Jesus Christ in America, um, that we would walk in unity, harmony, and oneness. So his church personifies, calls, and leads America to unity. It begins with us. The third thing we're praying for on the National Day of Prayer is unity in the families, workplaces, communities, and cities across the country. Second Chronicles thirty twelve says, also the power of God was at work in Judah to unite them to carry out the command of the king and his officials by the word of the Lord. God's power upon us is the only source to unite our families, our workplaces, communities, and cities in America. We need to call families, workplaces, and communities, cities, to look to our only king, Jesus Christ, who is not only only the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also the Prince of Peace who can unify us. We need to pray for America's families, workplaces, communities, and cities. It is the spiritual energy that leads to forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, and unity. And we are invited to pray without ceasing. We're also praying 
for unity among all ethnicities and peoples in America, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2.14 says, apart from him, it's not possible for us to experience that. Uh, since each of us is made in the image of God, we each bear his image regardless of the color of our skin or the uniqueness of our ethnicity. And through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has torn down the wall of division among all ethnicities and peoples. In God alone, we unify and live in peace with one another, standing as one people against all racial and ethnic division, denouncing it as sin and not God's will for us. And that begins in the church. We're also praying on the National Day of Prayer for Unity that we agree clearly, unite visibly, and pray extraordinarily for the next great spiritual awakening in America. Acts one fourteen says they are uh, they all were continually united in prayer, and that's what we need to do, continually unite in prayer. Preceding the epic movement of God on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, Jesus' people were continually united in prayer together. We should do likewise. Convict the church, we're praying, convict the church in America to wake up spiritually, agree clearly, unite visibly, and pray extraordinarily for the next great spiritual awakening in America, awakening rather, in America to occur in our generation, in our time, and to call upon God to bring spiritual awakening now in America, shaping the future of this country, just as the great spiritual awakenings in our history have shaped our spiritual heritage as a nation. Well, we are praying for seven centers of influence across the country for government, the federal, state, and local governments, for the military, military leaders, uh, for protection, courage, and dependence on God. We're praying for the media, that they would be truth bearers, that they would, li- uh, they would be life-giving and unity contributors, praying for business leaders of integrity, creators of economic blessing, givers of resources to the community, and education, that it would be truth-centered, not ideologically centered, excellence-driven, opportunity afforded, and for the church, that they would be gospel-centered in their message, uh, disciple-makers in mission and spirit-empowered in unity. And finally, for the family, that we would return to the biblical model, reconciliation in broken relationships and restoration to love and unity. These are the things that we are praying for on the National Day of Prayer. Again, always the first Thursday in May, which is the third this time around. That's this Thursday, and we'll certainly focus our time and attention on that very thing. Now, taking a look at some of our guests for the remainder of the week, on Wednesday, we're going to talk with June Hunt. She is the author of many uh, books, but we're going to talk with her about one of them titled Boundaries, How to Set Them and How to Keep Them. Now, some of us are good at one, but not necessarily the other, but both are necessary in order for boundaries to be effective. So we'll talk with June Hunt about that on Wednesday. On Thursday, of course, it's the National Day of Prayer. We'll spend much of our focus and time on Uh, the uh, gracious invitation that has been extended to all of us to come to the throne of grace and and to pray. In fact, that that reminder that we are invited to pray without ceasing says that we have continual, continuous access to the throne of grace. So we're going to talk about that. Also, Leslie Fields is the author of The Wonder Years, 40 Women Over 40 on Aging, Faith, Beauty, and Strength. Looking forward to that conversation. I'll be taking notes since I am well over 40 uh, these days. And I appreciate that she has written about uh, these years as the wonder years, that uh, there is no uh, expiration date on the effectiveness of God's people. I sometimes worry when churches uh, designate that we don't want anyone on the platform over 
pick an age, over 30. And I, what you're essentially saying to the 30-year-old, to the 28-year-old, is your usefulness ends when you hit 20 or 30 and you're no longer welcome on the platform because you have nothing to offer, which seems to run counter to what the scriptures tell us about uh, the wisdom of the aged. Nonetheless, that's uh, our lineup on Friday. We'll uh, lighten things up as well. So I hope you'll join us. By the way, Prayer Connection, 18th and 19th. Check it out. Register. Go. A lot of praying. A lot of great teaching. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to thank Chris Williams for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.